We're going to see that as we open our Bibles to Colossians 3. We're looking at verses 1 to 17 today. If you don't have a Bible and you want to pull the Bible out of the seat back in front of you, you will find that text on page 834. Uh, Lindsay Clegg is a businessman in London, and he tells a story about one, and he was walking a serious potential buyer through, and the place had been empty for months, and it wasn't in the best part of town, and vandals had smashed the windows, they damaged the doors, they'd strewn trash around. And as they walked through, Clegg was embarrassed, and he assured the prospective buyer profusely that he would have the place cleaned up and fixed up before the man took possession. But the guy said, don't worry about it. I'm planning to tear the whole thing down and build something completely different. I want the site, not the building. Well, last Sunday we looked at Colossians 2, where various false teachings were swaying the Colossians to be more serious about religion by keeping certain Jewish holy days and seeking certain spiritual experiences and mastering deeper theology and devoting themselves to ascetic practices of self-denial. And while these things may have their place in one's spiritual life, Paul made it clear that trying to grow spiritually and trying to earn God's acceptance by doing these sorts of things alone is like tidying up a warehouse which is slated to be knocked down by a wrecking ball. God has far bigger plans and dreams for us. Far greater treasures, as we put it over the last few weeks, than just a little sprucing up here or there. In fact, to change the analogy slightly, Paul tells us in today's passage, Colossians 3, that God has already built a development of brand new luxury homes next door. And Paul says, what are you doing still living like squatters in the old trashed warehouse? Move next door. Or to use the image that Paul uses, God has begun making a brand new creation. And God has installed his son, Jesus, as king over this new creation. If you have accepted Christ as your king, then you have died with Christ to the old creation, which was falling apart under the ruined leadership of the old king, Adam. And you have been raised with Christ into this brand new creation with its wonderful king, Jesus. So Paul urges us in today's passage, quit acting like you're still living in the old creation. To better appreciate what Paul's driving at here, let's take some time to understand the way Paul views history and what God has done and what God will do in history. Like every good Jew, Paul knew from Scripture that we live in a fallen world. A world which was created good, but which fell into evil and brokenness at the hands of the first king, Adam, who was told to rule over God's creation, but who rebelled against God, the creator. And because of this tragic fall, all who live in the current creation eventually die and all things run down and tend toward destruction, like many of our kids' bedrooms. However, Paul also knew from Scripture that one day God would come again to his creation. God would become its true king. He would restore this world, remaking it into a new and eternal creation which will last forever. And those down through history who had 
trusted in God and who had followed God by faith will one day be raised to life to live in this new creation. You could picture this view of history like this. Old creation, new creation. Old age, old kingdom under Adam. New age to come, new age under God. And this was the Jewish view of history and of the future from the Old Testament. However, a funny thing happened about 2,000 years ago. Jesus of Nazareth appeared, and he announced the great news of the arrival of the new age, the kingdom of God, the new creation. He even claimed to be the new king. But surprisingly, instead of successfully, we can leave that slide up, um, disappeared into there we go all right so jesus announced the arrival of the kingdom of god the new creation he claimed to be the new king but then there was a surprise instead of successfully establishing god's kingdom and wrestling control of the world away from god's enemies jesus was instead put to death by god's enemies then three days later an even more surprising thing happened Jesus rose from the dead, which was a a telltale sign of the new creation's arrival. But only Jesus rose, not the rest of those who had died as faithful followers of God in the past. And after Jesus' resurrection, instead of establishing God's kingdom on earth, Jesus ascended to heaven and, and left his spirit among his followers instead. Well, Jesus' followers... Paul included, puzzled over this surprising turn of events. And they eventually expressed what God had done through Jesus with this phrase, already, but not yet. Already, God's kingdom, God's new creation has already arrived in Jesus Christ. But it has not yet arrived fully. You could picture it like this, this next slide. We live in the overlap of the ages, the time between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. In and through Jesus, the new creation has already broken into present history. And so N.T. Wright can say, Christians are members of the age to come for which Israel was waiting Christians are members of the age to come for which Israel was waiting. And yet, the old age is not yet extinguished. It's still here. We're reminded of that every day. And so we live in both ages, or or better, we can choose to live in either age. And that's exactly what Paul is getting at in our passage. Paul says, you can live downstairs, Or you can live upstairs. It's a choice. Let me help you to make the choice. When Christ died, he died to the old creation, to the downstairs world. And when he rose again, he arose into the new creation, the upstairs world. If you have put your faith in Christ, which is expressed in the act of baptism, then you are are buried with Christ as you go down into the waters of baptism. and, And you are raised with Christ as you come up to a new life. Isn't this great news? 
Jesus has opened up the way for us to move upstairs. When we put our faith in Christ, we die to the old downstairs world and we move upstairs to a new creation life. While Paul covered all that back in Colossians 2, Greg and I looked at it over the last few weeks as we preached through Colossians 2. Now, in Colossians 3, Paul says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In other words, move upstairs. Now, hear this well. When Paul says we should set our hearts on things above, he is not talking about our true home being in heaven. He's not encouraging us to be pie in the sky, world denying, so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. The whole point of the chapter we'll see has to do with how we live in this world. Paul does want us to set our hearts on things above, but what does he say is above that we should be setting our hearts on? Not pearly gates and angels, nor heavenly mysteries. We saw last week that these are some of the very things that Paul warned the Colossians not to put their treasure in. No, who does Paul say is above? Verse 1. Christ, our treasure. And more specifically, Christ seated at the right hand of God. Paul's alluding to Psalm 110 here, which says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until... I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. That's what we see when we get our minds on things above. When we set our minds on things above, we're setting our minds on Christ's reign and his victory over all that's wrong with the old creation. We're setting our minds on the new creation, on the kingdom of God. We pray Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your heavenly kingdom where where your son sits on the throne, where your will is already done, come down and be true here. That's what we're setting our minds on. This new creation. So Paul says, live upstairs in the new creation, the new age, not downstairs in the old. To go back to an early analogy, he's saying, stop hanging around in the old warehouse and move into the luxury home development next door. Ann and I once lived in an old rental house. The rent was really reasonable because the landlord planned to tear the house down when our lease was up. And that meant that that while he was accommodating and, and he was a reasonable guy, he wasn't too keen on fixing anything that broke if we could live with it the way it was for a little longer. Why? Because he had visions of a brand new home which he was going to build on that site. He didn't want to pour unnecessary money into an old crumbling home. And Paul is saying to us, don't invest your life, your energy, your desires in what is passing away. Start living now in the new reality that God is creating for you. 
So what does that new life look like? Well, first, Paul describes the old creation life by way of contrast. Verse 7, he says, You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. And he describes, verse 5, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Verse 8, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips, and lying to one another. And Paul adds, because we lived these ways, verse 6, the wrath of God is coming. If you carry on living in the old world, your life will eventually hit a terrible dead end as the whole thing is demolished. Then Paul describes the new creation life he's calling us into in Christ. This is the world where Christ is on the throne, making all things new. In this new creation, verse 11, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, Greek or barbarian or Scythian. Scythians had a reputation among Greeks for being the most crude, uncivilized barbarians of all. Remember the boundary markers from last week, which separated one group from another group. It separated those who were in from those who were out. In the new creation, Paul says, they're gone. The boundary markers which divided us are gone. All there is now is Christ, our treasure, and everyone who puts their faith in Christ. There aren't old Christians and young Christians, black Christians or white Christians, Male Christians and female Christians, Pentecostal Christians or Baptist Christians. There aren't white-collar Christians and and blue-collar Christians, union Christians or management Christians, liberal Christians or conservative Christians. Not anymore. Now either you follow Christ the King or you don't. And if you do, if Christ is your treasure, then you are part of one family, one body, and we're all equal. This is radical stuff, isn't it? Welcome to the new creation. Then in verse 9, Paul says, we are all being renewed in knowledge, in the image of our creator. What does this mean? Well, the old creation had a king. Adam was created to reflect the image of God, his creator, but when he rebelled, that image got marred and distorted. But now God has begun a new creation and has installed a new king over that creation to rule over it, and Christ now once again perfectly reflects the image of God. And we, if we follow Christ and move with him into the new creation, will experience that we are being renewed, we're being recreated into the image of Christ so that we too accurately reflect God's image once again as we were created to do. One day, when Christ returns and appears, Paul says, we also will appear with him in glory. Right now, who we are, he says, is in a sense hidden with Christ. We don't fully see who we're becoming, do we? We don't always even see the progress that the new creation is making in us and around us. We only get glimpses of it now and then. 
But when Christ appears, Paul says, and the old creation disappears completely, what we have become will be made clear in all of our glory. What a day that will be when we perfectly reflect the image of God and enter fully into the new creation. So how do we move upstairs now? How do we leave the warehouse behind and and move next door into a new life? Well, Paul says it starts with our thinking. We've got to soak our minds. We've got to soak our hearts and our imaginations in this new reality. There really is a new creation. God really is doing something new in the world and in us. And if our faith is in Christ, we really are dead to the old world. And we really are alive to the new. And we really can live a new, even more wonderful kind of life. So Paul urges us, set your hearts, verse 1. Set your minds, verse 2, on things above where Christ reigns, not on earthly things. Be renewed in knowledge, verse 10, in the image of your creator. Begins with our thinking. Then Paul gets even more practical. And and to help us understand how this new life works, he gives us a new image, which we've already seen this morning. He says it's time to change your clothes. What you wore in the warehouse when you were squatting there isn't appropriate for life in a luxury home. So take off the old, grungy, smelly duds and change into something brand new and styling. Take off the old self with its practices, verse 9, and and put on the new self which is being renewed in the image of your Creator. God has designed some brand new threads for you. Try them on. You're going to look great. I still remember one morning about 11 years ago, I was sitting with a couple of my best friends in my kitchen eating breakfast, and we were, we were in our sweats. And I remember thinking, this feels weird. Why? Because I knew that in about half an hour, we would be heading over to a church a few blocks away dressed in tuxes. And my bride, I knew, was even then already at the church dressed in a beautiful gown. And here we were less than an hour before that big moment hanging out in ratty gray sweats. And and as I thought about what was about to happen, being in those sweats felt strange. I was fixing my heart and my mind on on what was ahead. And, And so it felt so appropriate to get out of those sweats and into a tux. Paul urges us to do the same thing. Let's look more closely at the clothes that God has designed for us to put on. Verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. What a wardrobe. 
This is what the people of God look like. Because this is what God looks like. And we are being remade in His image. Remember last week, Paul insisted that Christians are not to be known primarily for eating certain foods or celebrating on certain days or having a deep grasp of certain teachings or having certain spiritual experiences or denying themselves certain pleasures. Rather, Christians are to be known as a community of people who look like Jesus, our king. Who are compassionate, who are kind, humble. Gentle, patient with one another. Who forgive, who give each other grace, and most of all, who are known for our love. Now, if you've tried to live this way at all, and and if you have any self-awareness, then you know that it would be a lot easier just to follow a diet. Or to keep certain days, or, or to learn theology, or to subscribe to some ideological or political ism. That's why the church again and again gravitates towards back, back towards these things. Outward religion is a lot easier and more straightforward than developing a new character. Besides, the new creation is so new and, and mysterious, we're more comfortable with the old. It's, it's familiar, it's tangible, it's doable. I mean, we don't even need God to do the old creation stuff. So I've been to churches where if you didn't speak in tongues, you weren't a real Christian. If you didn't master Calvin's theology, you weren't a real Christian. If you didn't serve the poor or or support missions, you weren't a real Christian. If you didn't homeschool your kids, you weren't a real Christian. If you didn't vote for this or that political party, you weren't a real Christian. And interestingly, none of this, in my experience, leads people to joy or or to freedom or or to gratitude or to transformed lives. That's because it's all old creation stuff. And you know what? The world senses it. That's why some people at least want nothing to do with church. Church. Paul is calling us to something so much better. He's calling us to discover the treasure of Jesus Christ, the one who brings us into a brand new relationship where we become brand new people. A community transformed into the image of God himself, compassionate, kind, forgiving, generous, gentle, humble. And these qualities aren't just nice qualities. We we aren't just to be nice, polite, caring people. No, these are gutsy qualities. Just look at Jesus. These qualities cause us to sacrifice. They, They cause us to give. They cause us to risk. To risk getting dirty. To risk getting hurt. To risk being misunderstood. The early church, persecuted as they were, didn't turn the Roman world upside down because they were nice people. No, they transformed their world because they rescued discarded babies from from the trash heap and raised them as their own. Because they shared the little they had with those who were hungry who had less. Because they forgave their enemies, even when their enemies were persecuting them. 
Because they visited those who were in prison for the gospel, even if it meant that they might wind up in prison themselves for identifying with those people. And the world said, wow, something's different here. I want what you guys have. Oh, may we become that kind of community. May we continue to grow into that. But we can't just muster it up within ourselves. So how do we become this kind of people? Well, the good news is God is already doing it within us. We just need to recognize it, to embrace it, and to cooperate with it. So in the few minutes we have left, let's consider what practically we do to to put off the old clothes and to put on the new clothes, which God is handing to us. Three things. First, as we've already seen, we need to let these things fill our minds. As Paul put it famously in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. The key to this is what Paul says in verse 16 of chapter 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. It's the word which reminds us about the new creation and that we have been raised to be part of it. It's the word which which gives us this new view of reality. We've got to be a people of the word or or we'll forget who we are and, and we'll forget what Christ has done. And we'll forget which floor we're supposed to be living on. And this isn't something we can just do alone. It's a group activity. Paul urges us to teach and admonish one another with the word. Remind one another of these things. Of this good news. Second practical application, verse 5. Paul says, we need to put to death everything that belongs to our earthly nature. All that old creation stuff. Sexual immorality, lust, greed, anger, slander, filthy language. Put these sins to death, he says. You've died to this stuff, so put it to death. I like the way theologian J.I. Packer puts it. He says, this is our aim. So to drain the life out of sin that it never moves again. Then he adds, quoting the the old English theologian John Owen's, Sin will not otherwise die, but by being gradually and constantly weakened. Owen warns, spare it, and it heals its wounds and recovers strength. C.S. Lewis adds some wisdom of his own along these lines. He's reflecting on that difficult psalm which talks about dashing your enemies' babies against the rocks. And he says, I know of some things in the inner world which are like babies, those infantile beginnings of small indulgences, small resentments, temptations which may one day become alcoholism or settled hatred, but which woo us and and wheedle us with special pleadings. And they seem so tiny, so so helpless, that that in resisting them, we feel like we're being cruel to animals. You ever had that feeling about a craving, a desire you've had? feels wrong to resist it. Lewis continues, they begin whimpering to us, I don't ask for much, but, or I had at least hoped, or you owe yourself some consideration. Against all such pretty infants, 
the deers have such winning ways. The advice of the psalm is the best. Knock the little bastard's brains out. He's using the B word in the literal sense. These are sinful desires, our illegitimate children. Well, having committed ourselves to a protracted campaign against our sinful urges, and again, we can't do this alone. We need a group of others to encourage us. The third practical application Paul gives us then is to put on Christ-like qualities, verse 10. We have to actually do new creation stuff. We have to act compassionately and kindly and generously. We have to actually forgive. Yet the tricky thing is the old self can't do these things in our own strength. This is a walk of faith. We have to believe that we've died to the old. We have to believe that we've been raised to the new. We, we have to believe that we are being renewed in the image of the creator. We have to believe that, that God has fashioned for us a beautiful new wardrobe and that we can put it on. J.I. Packer explains how we might do this. First, he suggests, when you get up in the morning, remember that you have died to the old creation and that you are alive to the new. And so ask yourself, what is the next act of new creation living that God has for me to do? Second, lift up your heart to God and say, Lord, here goes. I, I can't get this right in my own strength. Help me. I can only put on the new clothes that you've given for me to wear. Third, step out and act, believing that God is going to help you. And in fact, you will find that he does. Fourth, review. Give God thanks for what you were able to do right. Ask his forgiveness for where you still messed up. And then fifth, go back to step one and do it again and again and again. As someone has said, acts form habits, habits form character. Character determines destiny. And our destiny is the new creation where one day we will be shown for who we are and who we are becoming in glory when Jesus Christ is revealed. So here's the challenge. As elders, we've been working toward this vision that Paul has given us. We've been working on it this past year, and we've been reaffirming our vision and our commitment at CBC that we become a people like this. A new creation people for whom growing spiritually is top priority. And we've been trying to figure out practically how to help this to happen and to keep it a priority at CBC. And to get there, we realize we need at least two things. We need a practical strategy for spiritual growth, so we remind one another of these things and we live it out step by step. We also need groups who can live the strategy out together because it's a team sport. We can't do it alone. And I have to admit that once we get down to the details, it's been a slow process for a number of reasons to get these things figured out. But you don't have to wait for us. That's the challenge. Find a few other people and get together for the purpose of growing. That's what the church is about. Because we aren't meant to grow all by ourselves. This is something we do together. So find some people. And 
if you need some resources, I can help you with plenty of those. There's others you know you can draw on. One thing we hope to do in the coming year is to offer some small group training to equip some of us to start and lead these kinds of groups. And um, if you'd be interested in that kind of training, let me know as well as we look toward the coming year and get that organized. So that's the challenge. Let's pray. God, thank you that you found the Apostle Paul and a man of such towering intellect and yet of such a humble, dependent reliance and seeking after you in his weakness. Thank you for all you taught him. Thank you for the courage that you gave him to be our tour guide as we've been on a tour after treasure over this last month. Thank you for the way he was able to sacrifice for this, to bring this message to people in the first century and to bring it to us today. And I pray that you would capture our hearts with this vision of the new creation, that Christ would be our treasure, that you'd continually remind us um, through your spirit who is given to us to enable us to live in this new age into which you've raised us. Um, remind us, empower us, clothe us, equip us to become more and more this kind of people. Amen.